Good morning, NSA. Jim, are you going to accompany me for the service? Okay, all right, good. No, no I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I, thought, I thought about hiring a minstrel to follow me around Lonsdale, and uh, maybe, maybe you're the man for me, Jim, in this moment. Uh, special welcome to our online guests. We're glad you're with us this morning as well. Uh, before I get going, I just want to highlight there's one announcement that's personal to me, um, and that's that at the end of November, first week of December, um, we have a guest speaker coming in. It's my uncle. Now, this is funny because nepotism is where, um, where the uncle gives the benefit to the nephew. This is the opposite because I'm the nephew somehow, so he doesn't benefit from this at all. But my uncle uh, has been an evangelist with the Southern Baptists for about uh, 50 years of his life. Um, he's, a, he's a gifted speaker. He's very extremely winsome and joyful, and I'm excited to share him with you uh, for those two weeks. He'll be preaching in English, uh, but we will have a worship service in Spanish because we have an astonishing number of Spanish speakers um, in our midst, uh, some surprise ones too, like Anne Thick and Brad Kennedy, who you think, wow, they're okay, so it's great, it's great. Uh, so we're going to have a service for that as well. I'm just excited to share it with you, excited to share him with you, and looking forward to that time together. All right, enough of the nepotism, I'm sorry, enough of the promotion. So um, we are approaching the end of our series in First Peter. So this week and next week, we will finish working our way through the book. We've made it almost all the way through today. This fall, we've been in the book looking at life as expatriate citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, an expat is someone um, in the world who temporarily goes to live in another country uh, make a living, and then returns, returns home after that time. So there's something temporary about their status. And I like that because there's something temporary about all of our status in this world, right? We are citizens, because of our faith in Christ, of another country, living in a place that's not our home, with the difficulties and the, the, the things that pinch, and the foods aren't quite right, and uh, sometimes you can't speak your heart language with your neighbor next to you, uh, because there's not that ease. And so uh, I think it's a helpful metaphor. And there are difficulties, of course, other ones. There's alienation, um, ostracization, and sometimes outright oppression and pain because we don't quite fit in. These are the situations that the book of 1 Peter is addressing. So this week and next, we're coming to this conclusion, and today we've got two paragraphs of text to study. Two paragraphs back-to-back. -back. One of them is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, which, interestingly, becomes a kind of summary of the whole book of 1 Peter. So we're going to look at that uh, as a summary of the book. And then 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, is a charge to leadership in light of that summary. So a summary of the book, and then how do the leaders support them. And today we're going to do something I don't know that I've done with you yet. We're actually going to go verse by verse through the text. You'll see that in your notes. I've got all the verses listed. I'm just going to walk each verse through and make comments on each one as we go. Sometimes I like to highlight. Sometimes I like to take things out of order. Today, straight bang on through the Bible. And just a brief word about interpreting before we go on. Sometimes it's great. That's exactly what we ought to do. We ought to be looking at the specific verses and getting just just the life of that one verse out of us. Um, but in, in old literature, essentially, the paragraph is the unit of thought. The paragraph is always the main idea. You don't, shouldn't really just be reading a verse. You should be reading the paragraph around the verse to see what the author meant. And then on top of that, um, sometimes the paragraphs comment on each other as well. And this is kind of how we expand out in reading. We get to do all three today. We get to look at the verses, then we get to look at the paragraph, and then we get to look at how they come together side by side. 
So I'd like us to begin with the reading of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. The words will be on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers, suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word for us today. So, the first paragraph, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, this whole section paragraph, as far as I understand it, is a summary of everything we've covered in First Peter so far. It's a snapshot summary of the entire book in just a few verses, excuse me. <clears throat> this is a letter to people who are suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you right now, people experiencing discomfort. Remember, we've talked about the call uh, two weeks ago especially to suffer as Christ, to suffer um, in the image of Christ and what that means for us, and the potential of that suffering to have a kind of saving, a knock-on saving effect for people like us. So when we're identified with Christ and Christ's suffering saved, our suffering has power to do something to change the world as well. And within this, there is a call to trust in God radically. So let's go through this verse by verse. So verse 12 here, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. Okay, like we've said, the fiery trial is the uh, local bit of persecution happening in Asia Minor at this time. It's the difficulty Christians are experiencing. For us, uh, by extension, this is our sense of pain or dissociation or just general discomfort with living in the world. Um, the pinch of being, um, we talked about the Z-axis, the three-dimensional kind of person living in a two-dimensional world. This is just the difficulty of having this kind of outlet. And these opening words, I just want to highlight these for these for you. Do not be surprised, I think is really interesting. It jumps out at me. Why should we not be surprised that there is pain in the world? Well, I've got three kind of basic reasons. We'll go through these super quickly. Uh, don't be surprised because Christ suffered. If you're called to be like Christ and you're going to look like Christ and look what happened to Christ, why are you surprised that it hurts? Don't be surprised. This is what it looks like when you live for God in the world. Uh, don't be surprised also because you are an alien. This isn't your home. Why should it look like home? Why should it feel like home? What were you expecting? You've been pulled out of this world. So don't be surprised. Or third, don't be surprised, and I think this is partly what Peter's going to lean into, because God's in control. What, do you think he's not in control? 
with what's going on right now? Why are you surprised at the fiery trial among you? So there's just three kind of basic reasons in the theology of Peter why you shouldn't be surprised. Those, those things jumped out at me when I read this. Let's move on to verse 13. But to the degree that you are share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. This is kind of a shocking command. Rejoice in the midst of your suffering. Rejoice when things aren't going well. Why should this be? Well, the focus, again, is this phrase, at the revelation of his glory. Well, rejoice because the trial will end. It is going to come to an end, and it comes to an end ultimately when Christ returns in power and glory and authority, and then it's all over. So there's a, there's a definite end to whatever discomfort you're feeling right now, and you can rejoice in that definite end. Once again, two weeks ago, I talked about how baptism, uh, baptism makes us one with Christ, draws us into this identity of Christ, this language of being made one with him and having our shared language and our shared personhood that we are Christ in the world. And we are sharers both of Christ's sufferings, which we should expect, but also of Christ's victory when he returns. There's something to look forward to. He's going to win. And we, because we're joined with him, get to win with him. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Again, this is a statement of Peter's theology of suffering from the previous weeks. Participation with Christ binds us to Christ's ministry. Christ suffered so we can live. Now we suffer in likeness to Christ so that our peers, our neighbors, our opposition might have a chance to live. This is the radical teaching of this. Uh, but of course, this is also kind of personal for Peter. Uh, if you remember in Acts, uh, Peter and the apostles are beginning to preach, and there's some opposition from the Jews, and they begin to get upset with them, and they're hauled before a council, and there's this kind of council moment. And then in Acts uh, chapter 5, verses 40 to 42, um, Gamaliel has some advice, and here's what it says. Uh, they took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So this is the advice. Let's beat them and say, don't talk in Jesus' name anymore, okay? And then uh, they went on their way, this is Peter and them, from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this is personal for Peter, that he's done this before. Aside, just a brief aside, how do you stop people who are cheerful when you beat them? Like you think, like, I'll, I'm going to give a good beating and that'll stop them. But then they, they get up and they're like, we got to suffer. Cool. Let's go. I mean, how, how does that work? Um, it's pretty pretty amazing spirit of these guys. So that's why we aren't ashamed to suffer if we glorify God um, in his name. In this name is what it says. Am I on the right page? We're going to find out. Hang on a second. They were messed up this morning when I went through this, and I thought, oh, I've got it sorted now, maybe not. In this name, right? For the name of Christ. No, I'm on the wrong page. Sorry, Bob. Not your fault. Okay? Suffer for the name of Christ. <laughs> Suffer for the name of Christ. Uh, let's take this back again. Let's look at this verse fresh. Forget everything I've said, and let's go back... <laughs> Let's go back about two minutes in time 
and let's talk about it. Suffer, verse 14, for the name of Christ. Oh, good. Thank you, Bob. Right there, for the name of Christ. That means suffer for the right reasons, eh? Make sure when you're suffering for the name of Christ, you're not suffering for your own name or suffering to make yourself look good. You're suffering because of your loyalty to the kingdom of God, suffering because of your commitment to things on the Z-axis, says this. Now, verse 15, here we go. Peter states the inverse of 14, which is suffer as Christ. Good Lord. All right, it's going to get sorted in a minute. We're fine. Are we on verse 15? We're on verse 15. Great. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. None of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. This is the inverse of verse 14. If you're going to suffer for Christ, you're suffering for the right reasons. And Peter's listed some of the wrong reasons here. So suffer for Jesus, not because you were an idiot. He's got this interesting list of four things. Murderer, thievery, Evil-doing, which is technically the word for criminality, it's kakapoeo, someone who works evil. And then this word, uh, troublesome meddler. Um, I spent some time looking this word up. It's the only time it occurs in the New Testament anywhere, and nobody knows what it means. Isn't that nice? It's one of these words that nobody has any idea. They can't find it. They don't know what it looks like. Uh, the two words in Greek that come together mean something like estrangement and oversight. How, it's oversight of estrangement, or it's a very, very odd thing. And I actually think there's a good chance that probably it might mean something like insurrectionist. Um, estranging oversight, uh, instigator, uh, someone who makes things uh, happen. Now, and I, uh, when I realized that, I thought, actually, this is helpful because all four of these things uh, will easily get you killed in the Roman legal system, Right? If, you, if, you're given, if you're a criminal, or if you're a murderer, or if you're a thief, or if you're an insurrectionist, these all four things will get you killed. And I think actually they reveal, if that's the case, and maybe I'm riffing, but it's okay, they reveal some temptations of people who are suffering, right? Let's, um, let's take matters into our own hands. Uh, let's, let's deal with this by the most efficient means possible. Let's overthrow the oppressors. Uh, wouldn't it be a lot easier if Rome were Christian and then we Christians wouldn't have to suffer? Or what if we could make Canada more Christian and then it wouldn't be so awkward? Or, and this is genuine political points uh, for Americans, if we just made America more Christian again, um, these things wouldn't be difficult for us. Oh, I'm not sure how difficult it is. Let's do whatever we need to do to make it happen. And I think that's interesting. There's two responses, perhaps. On the one hand, um, I could say that because I live by kingdom rules, I can violently make the kingdom happen here on earth. Do you see how that works? I'm a citizen. I'm a, this is where the z-axis goes wrong. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. The rules of this world don't apply to me. Therefore, I can violate them freely and overthrow. And that's, that's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying don't suffer for those reasons. Okay? Because I live by kingdom rules, I no longer have to obey earthly rules. And sometimes Christians do that, right? Uh, we'll cheat. We'll go around back. We'll, we'll try to game the system. Because, well, it's for the sake of the kingdom, isn't it? Um, that's not the right reason to suffer. I think this is the heart behind the attitude of people who are kind of jerks for Jesus. People who make a stink, not because they're looking like Christ, but because they want to fight uh, for their rights in some of these things. Um, and I want to say kind of a dangerous political comment for a second right now. So I've prefaced that with danger, and now you're all leaning in. That's okay. 
Um, there were legitimate reasons to be concerned about the governmental response to COVID-19. There were legitimate reasons about overreach and oversight and um, experimenting on vast populations with things like this is, there are reasons to be concerned. But many people in the church justified their opposition to these things by appeal to their Christian faith. And that was not right. Now, within the church, there were also people who took great pride in being good citizens. That also was not the spirit of Christ. So let's be clear about this. Nobody's get a freebie on this. But I think we've witnessed how some of the spirit of insurrection um, activates in the church unhelpfully sometimes. Okay? Now, I've not made a p public position on COVID at all <laughs> in that. It's just describing what's going on in our midst. All right, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. How do you suffer as a Christian? Well, the answer is the suffering must be because of our likeness to Christ. If you're experiencing discomfort or the pinch or, or the feeling of alienation, it's because you are so like Christ, not because of your own willfulness or uh, your projection onto people around you. That can't be the way things work. In the process of being broken down to be remade as Christ, you are going to have a radical alignment with his values and characters which sets you at odds to the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this needs to be the basis of our suffering for us to have a good conscience about these things. Now we get to the passage in, first, in Acts uh, where they suffer for Jesus' name and, and we can skip past it because I've already talked about it. Perfect, well done. So moving past Acts chapter five, um, this is why we aren't ashamed to suffer if we glorify God in this name. In this name, and this gets us to the word Christianos. This name is the name suffer as a Christian. And I remind you that Christianos means little Christ. And from day one, it was meant as an insult. It was always spoken with distaste. You Christians, because they were irritated by you. You remind me of Jesus who irritated me, and now you irritate me. You are like him. The Christian's never been a compliment uh, for us. I think that's important. It's kind of been in vogue lately to distance ourselves from the name Christian, right? We're, we're maybe a little embarrassed by some of the, the political overlaps between Christians and what's, what does it mean to be called a Christian in the world. Again, it's never been a compliment, so it depends on what level of insult you want to embrace <laughs> as, as a follower of Jesus. Uh, sometimes people want to say things like, I'm a follower of Jesus, or it's a religion, not a relationship, or a relationship, not a religion, and so forth. Um, and these things, whatever. But if the word is deployed because someone in the world recognizes the Jesus likeness in you, if they say there's something different about you and I don't know what to call it, even if that likeness is experienced as difference and challenge and even irritation, then there's no greater honor than to be called a Christian. I mean, if someone says to you, you believe what about human people? You think what about sexuality? <laughs> you think we're supposed to do what with our money? And they're bothered by it? Well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm trying to be a Christian, <laughs> right? And that's different. And if you're uncomfortable with the name Christian, um, if someone says, are you one of those Christians? You can say, I'm trying to be. And that invites them to ask more questions. What do you mean you're trying to be? Right? You say, well, I'm, I'm called to be like the perfect person, Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect yet, are you? Okay. And then, then, they, then they've got to ask more questions. You can use that to deploy, it, deploy that at your leisure, all right? 
Verse 17 in 1 Peter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Time for judgment to begin with the household of God. These are ominous words, aren't they? Judgment is coming, of course. The final judgment is coming. And everyone experiences that judgment. Everyone gets to experience part of it. The only difference is we know the judge. We've got an inside relationship with him. And that's something that benefits us. What Peter seems to be imagining in this verse is the situation where our pain and discomfort now are part of this judgment process. And he implies that the, pure, the world's judgment is coming later. Now, let's be clear. Pain has a wonderfully clarifying power, has a way of really focusing what's important in life, helps you to see the things that really, really matter. And that means the pain and discomfort of being a Christian in the world should clarify your values. Am I really in this kingdom thing or not? I should make that clear for you. Verse 18, if it, if, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless and the sinner? Now, this difficulty of saving the righteous is probably a reference to the difficulty of the saving work of Christ. Now, let's just be explicit with some scriptures. If it took the cross to save the righteous, what will it take to save the godless? If it was a cross that was required, what's going to be required to save the godless? The implication is um, it's going to be really hard. John 14.6 says this, Jesus writes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way, says Jesus. Jesus again in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 writes, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. There's only one way. And it's through the cross. It's through the person of Jesus. And the difficulty is that the only way to salvation is through our Lord. Now, interesting, the words of verse 18 are actually a quote from the book of Proverbs. Um, and usually when you come across an Old Testament quote, you need to go back and look at the context and see what's going on. But Proverbs uh, is probably the only book in the Bible that's just little phrases. There's, there's, no, there's not a lot of context. The context for the book of Proverbs is wisdom. And the answer seems to be what Peter is implying is that if you're going to be wise, you should submit to Jesus now. Wisdom is making the right decision now. Verse 19, last verse of this first paragraph. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, I spent quite a bit of time on this verse, and it's actually quite beautiful. And there's some things that um, don't maybe come out in the translation very well. And upon reflection, I think this might actually be the key verse for all of 1 Peter. This may be the central verse for the entire book. So there's, a, once again, an embedded command. Remember these command forms where Peter tells us to do something. We have to use, like, tone of voice, like, hey, stop, go, do. Um, but in Greek, you can just put a command in in these things. And the command is in this word, entrust. So I've translated it myself, and here's a slightly clearer translation. It'll be up on the screen. Um, Those who suffer according to the will of God had better entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good deeds. Now, it still has a kind of veiled threat, right? Like, you know, you better, you better do it or else. It's not, it's not really or else. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a pressure. There's a weight. Um, those who suffer according to the will of God, you, me, people who are called to the image of Christ, we must, we are called to, we ought to, we better, we have to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. 
to a faithful creator. In other words, the guiding light for the suffering and our suffering in the world is the fa- our trust in the fact that God is good. The goodness of God sits behind all that we're going through. Like a frame. You've got circumstances at this moment. The frame around your circumstances is there's a faithful creator. Okay? Have you missed out opportunities in life? Have you been passed over for promotion? There's a faithful creator who's doing these things. Have you lost friendships because of your commitments to Jesus? There's a faithful creator. Right? Could you have gotten ahead in life if you had cut corners and cheated in some ways, but now you've not gotten ahead because you were trying to live faithfully? Guess what? There's a faithful creator sitting around it who's watching and seeing and knows what's going on, and you must entrust yourself to him in the midst of these difficulties. Okay? I think this is the central verse of all of 1 Peter. Is a fiery trial going on for you? Trust yourself to the faithful creator. He's got it, right? It's quite wonderful. Um, There's a silly magnet used to be on the fridge of my house. Before you go to bed, give your troubles to God. He will be up all night anyway. It's silly, it's homely, but it is true. He doesn't go to sleep. He's not worried. He, he doesn't have the anxieties you have. He's not on your time scale. So give your troubles to him. Trust yourself to the faithful creator. He's got it. Okay? So, helpful frame. This is not actually the picture of my magnet. I pulled this. It's so common. Anyway, just, you'll find it. It's a good thing. Okay, so here's the summary of all First Peter, this first paragraph. Yes, y'all are suffering, but don't be surprised. You should expect this if you're following Jesus faithfully. Just keep making sure you're suffering for the right reasons. Jesus is coming and will make everything right. While you suffer, trust in the goodness of God, and he says, don't give up on doing good. That means caring for one another, for the poor and needy, and loving the city in which you're temporarily planted. Okay? First Peter, that's the lessons of First Peter. So let's move into this last paragraph for today, uh, which is chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where Peter gives a charge to leadership. Having described uh, the mission and, and explaining what's going on for the suffering of the church, Peter now says, now, what kind of role are your leaders supposed to have in the midst of this? He turns his attention to pastors, and what kind of pastors will they require to fulfill the mission? So let me reread that for you now. This is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Now, important note to begin. The word elder, uh, in Greek, it's presbyter. So if you know Presbyterians, this is part of it. Uh, elder or presbyter correlates to the office of pastor or overseer today. Okay? So Peter's talking to me. Let's be explicit here. This is a word to me in this moment. And by extension to our pastoral staff, but all right, how, how am I called to shepherd you in these moments? And with that in mind, let's take this again verse by verse. So, one. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So Peter opens with his credentials, like seriously impressive credentials, right? Credential one, I'm a fellow elder, okay? I also have this job. This is my job. It was my job first, actually, and now I'm sharing this job with you, okay? I'm an overseer of God's flock. Second credential, 
I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. <laughs> yeah, he was there, right? There's some serious authority in him saying, like, I saw these things happen, and now I'm commissioning you to speak about them. And then third is this language of being a partaker. We'll highlight this for a moment. A partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And this is a strong echo of 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The word share and the word partaker are the same word. Revelation and revealed are the same word. And so Peter is saying that um, what he's inviting you to do is something that he has already done himself. Let's be clear about that. Peter is saying, y'all who are suffering and experiencing discomfort have been invited to suffer for the sake of Christ. I've done it. Okay? I'm not asking you to do something, this is Peter speaking, that I myself haven't done. I've done it. I'm in the same boat as you. Okay? Uh, which is a wonderful model for leadership, that it's not leadership on top that's telling people what to do. It's leadership from the side uh, that comes alongside people. So Peter is leading by example. Okay, verse 1 is his credentials. Let's go to verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not out of compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Shepherd. Shepherd God's flock. Uh, the image of shepherding for pastors goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Kings of Israel were called shepherds of God's people. Bad kings were called bad shepherds. Jesus in the parables talks about wicked shepherds and good shepherds. He's usually talking about leadership. Okay? He's not talking about, about um, um, husbandry. He's talking about leadership in these moments. Uh, recall John 11, uh, 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is the shepherd. I'm the chief shepherd. I'm the guy in charge. And what does the guy in charge do? He sacrifices for his people. Uh, recall Peter's restoration at the end of John. Remember, three times Peter denied Jesus. He says, I don't know him. Okay. Three times says, I don't know him, to kind of save his skin. Um, he chose convenience over these things. And at the end of John, after Jesus is resurrected, they have a hard conversation. And three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Okay. It's reckoning, right? There's some subtlety here. I won't go into the subtlety of that passage. It's quite beautiful. Uh, but the third response, John 21, 17, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Okay? If you love me, look after my flock is the command. So when Peter now in his letter says, shepherd well, this goes all the way back to Jesus, right? This is the central moment of Peter's restoration, and now he's fulfilling his task. And so Peter's commissioning and restoration is as a shepherd, and now he extends his shepherd call to pastors everywhere. And that means the call to be a shepherd, as a, as a shepherd pastor, is to call to be one in the same way that Peter was called, to lay down your life for the sheep. You don't get to save yourself. You have to put yourself on the line. Their lives matter more than your life. And that's the call to pastors today, to lay down our lives for our flocks. He goes on to some conditions for service, not compulsion, but willingness I don't know what compulsion would look like. I'm not entirely sure how you'd be compelled to serve in this way. I suppose I could think of one way, which is that there's nobody else available and you just do it begrudgingly. Fine, I'll step into the role because there's nobody else who's around here who'll do this thing. You could feel compelled by things like that. Maybe that's the case. Uh, Peter also says not to do it greedily but freely. Definitely greed for money, huh? 
There's definitely, I could name some pastors who do it for the money, and they've got, man, they've got sweet lives, don't they? Think about all the, all the faith they can marshal to get those paychecks coming in. And if you just, in fact, for three easy payments of $39.99, I can ensure that you are blessed with the blessing of God. And that seed blessing will return in blessing for you, won't it? And it's very easy to manipulate people for the sake of our greed. Um, and Peter says, not for that greed. But you know, greed takes other forms. Uh, it's easy just to kind of highlight the, the, the crazy, I mean, there's a, I won't name them. I don't want to talk about their names right now. It's easy to highlight the people who are obviously doing it for money. It's less easy to look, at me, look in the mirror and see that we can also be greedy for things like power, right? Greedy to have our names known. Uh, greedy, there's a kind of greed of the small business entrepreneur where you want to go to the, we just had our district staff retreat up in Whistler, and go around and be like, yeah, like, how's your church doing? What are your numbers like? Let's make, am I doing better than you? How's it going, right? We can work it. We can feel like, well, my small business is doing great. And there's a greed there, isn't there? A greed to be well-known and show off your numbers. He says, not for this greed, but for, but freely. And freely is a word for eagerness, like eager for the task at hand. Eager to, to love and serve the people of God. And so Peter's message is serve because you love the work, not because you love any of the things that might come from the work. Serve because you love the work, not because you love the perks. I just made that up. That's nice. Mark, would you hold on to that and deploy it? Okay. Good. Verse 3, he goes on to more credentials, conditions for service. Nor yet is Lord to get over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Uh, these are conditions, so lording over those allotted literally is lording over your allotment. Uh, so you've got an inheritance, like a plot of inheritance. You have a little petty fiefdom, right? You've got your plot of land and the people who are under your care, and now you've become a little petty tyrant over them, right? And you can use your authority and power to kind of like, yeah, this is my space and I'm in charge and it's mine, right? So this is what it means to lord it over these things. And Peter's saying, don't be a petty king. Don't forget, you've got an over-shepherd you have an answer to, right? And don't start to think you're all that, and then you can make the lives of your people miserable or make them serve you. <clears throat> That's not what it's about. Instead, he says, be an example, <clears throat> like Christ is an example. People are looking to you, therefore you must do what you can to look like Christ. <clears throat> Better than that, point through your life to Christ. Uh, we talked about this. We closed out the baptism class this past Friday night. And one of the things we talked about was that, was that it's when things, whenever you begin with a teacher, a great teacher, people are always looking at the teacher. They're really excited. So the disciples at the beginning of the ministry, they're all focused really on Jesus. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, I no longer call you servants but friends. And he points them to the Father's business because Jesus is on about what God the Father was doing. And so it's a bit confusing because we do want to be like Christ, but when we're fully formed as Christ, you know what we're focused on? What God the Father is doing in the world. We're partners with him. Now, kind of similar way, like, I mean, I've got, I've got the microphone and the lights around me and I'm holding my Bible. Y'all are looking at me, but the point is not to look at me. The point is to look through me and past me to Jesus so that when I fade away and things are gone, you still got focus on him. He's the object of our attention, okay? And that's what's important, to make sure that Jesus is first and not me. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is super straightforward. I don't know what it means. Okay? I don't know what it means. 
Um, there's a definite article here, the unfading cloud of, crown of glory, <clears throat> not a or an unfading crown of glory. He's got something quite definite in mind here, and I think that's interesting. Uh, he's probably referencing <clears throat> games in the ancient world. Do you remember the laurel wreaths that showed up? So here we've got Julius Caesar <clears throat> with his kind of um, laurel wreath, and there's another photo, I've forgotten his name, he's a Scottish cyclist. Um, <clears throat> the Olympics, he gets his, the Greeks would give you this laurel wreath, and why is it made of flowers? Why is it made of greenery? Because it fades. It's a temporary win, right? It's interesting, too, there, there was a Roman tradition, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a Roman tradition uh, that you are, if you win a victory as a general, you come back to Rome and you get a triumph. And they, what do they do is they put you in a chariot, and they ride you through the streets of Rome, and people cheer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, this is really great, you'd bring back captured prisoners from the war, and then you'd recreate the battle in front of the emperor, and you'd kill them all. You'd kill the leftover passes, you know. And that was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Paul says, I'm like one of the, Paul says, I'm like one of these prisoners being led in triumph to be murdered in front of the emperor. This is what, this is how Paul sees himself. And so they did this. So while you're doing it, you've got a special charioteer. What's his name? Let me look up his name. He's called an auriga, Okay. He's a slave charioteer, and he rides with you in the chariot, and he holds your laurel crown, and while he rides with you through this thing, he whispers in your ear, hominem te memento, remember you are a man, remember you're mortal, remember that this glory fades, don't get too high on it yourself, interesting. And so against this, Peter says that there will be an unfading crown of glory, a crown that is not um, going to pass away. Does this mean that pastors are going to be especially rewarded in the afterlife? Well, I have no idea, and I don't really care because I'm not in it for the reward. It's <laughs> not why I'm here. Um, so I think we could just skip this verse. Some conclusions. Uh, we've looked at the verse by verse of today's passage. I hope you've been able to make some notes that are helpful and encourage you in your faith. As we draw, I want to highlight two things that come out from reading the paragraphs as a whole. So number one. In Peter's thinking, number one, the pastor slash overseer, this pastor bishop role, supports his people in their faithfulness, okay? The job of the pastor is to support his people in their faithfulness. Now, this should be fairly obvious, but let me make it explicit. Peter writes a letter to suffering Christians, documenting his theology of how to suffer for the sake of Christian witness, and the job of the local pastor is to encourage the flock as they perform their own hard obedience as Christ followers. My chief job is to serve you in your faith. That's it. Okay? You have a challenging call to be Z-axis Christians. Super challenging. Yours is the hard work of being faithful in your homes, in your workplaces, in your schoolrooms. And the most important thing about the church isn't the flashy faithfulness of the local pastor. It's the ordinary faithfulness of people in the pews. You are the most important thing about our church. Let's be super clear about that. And so my job isn't to replace your faith, but to encourage it, enrich it, challenge it, support it. This means, secondly, second point, is that in Peter's thinking, the pastor and overseer, this office, answers to God for his faithfulness. So I'm, I, my direct report is to the Almighty. <clears throat> so if I'm a good shepherd or a bad shepherd, one day I will have to stand in front of God Almighty and give account. And Jeremy, he will say, did you tend my flock? And I won't be able to give a dishonest answer. <clears throat> okay? Did you preach my word? Did you love my people? Did you benefit yourself unduly in your service to me? Ooh, 
right? I can't dodge. There won't be anything out of this. Let's recall James 3, 1 again. Not, let not many of you pr- become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Well, that's quite terrifying. It's, it's a harder judgment. So how will we survive? Well, folks, honestly, only by keeping our eyes on Jesus. If I'm focused on myself, I'll never make it. If I'm focused on serving him, we'll do it. That's 1 Peter 4 and 5. And we get to turn now to this um, meal of communion together today. Um, And I want to talk about the meal for just a second, because this is one of the places where we physically and notably serve you. We feed you um, with this meal that symbolically ties us to Jesus in his body and his blood, his sacrifice for us. And I think it's important for you to recognize that there is something, this is a thing where you are being served by people who are trying to love you in the name of Jesus. Um, We have been um, altering some of our um, communion practices um, where the people who are serving are are the pastors in our church or our our formal leadership as elders or our, our small group leaders. There are people who are serving you practically. And everyone serving you community today is someone equipped to serve you in prayer, to serve you in care. Um, And that's important that you recognize that and see it. Uh, I'm going to invite the servers, this morning's servers, to come up here as I read about this meal from um, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, symbolically, we have, um, <clears throat> we have one loaf that we eat from because we are one people in Christ's image. And we have one cup that we drink from because Christ was the one sacrifice who redeems us um, from our sin. Uh, in a moment, our, come on servers and put your, um, let's get our gloves together. Those of you who are there, we'll give some instructions. In a moment, the servers are going to take their places. Um, and together they're going to tear a piece of bread off and they're going to put it in your hand and they're going to say the words, this is the body of Christ given for you. Um, It's not broken. The scriptures are clear that not one of his bones were broken, but Christ's life was given for you, okay? And then you'll take it and you'll dip it in the cup and the person holding the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ uh, poured out for you or shed for you. And you'll be reminded in that moment that Jesus has done these things for you. Um, we um, We have some... Gluten-free, for some, we have some celiac members, and I want to honor them by saying we have some gluten-free crackers, and we have a separate cup that will have no wheat in it, um, so that those of you who want can participate in that. It'll be over here at this station, all right? So let me pray for you, and then we're going to sing, and then after they've served, they're going to be available to pray with you in the balcony and in this corner over here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for the sacrifice of your life, for the example you've given to us. I want to thank you for the redemption of our our brother and example, Peter, and his restoration and what it means for our faith. 
And I pray that in this unbroken pattern of men and women who strive to look like you, that you will call us to be faithful lookalikes in our homes and in our workplaces and in our schools. Transform us by this meal, Lord Jesus, into your likeness today. These things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.